again, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Cotton Grower Magazine's Cotton Companion Podcast. I don't know how things are where you are, but a significant chunk of the cotton belt's wondering today where spring went. After a few weeks of uh, some warm temperatures, some timely showers, and, and a great big rush to get corn planted and out of the way, uh, a bit too much rain and some significantly cooler temperatures have currently delayed or simply put cotton planting on hold for a few days. I'm Jim Stedman, editor of Cotton Grower, and with me is my colleague and friend, Beck Barnes. Beck, I thought we talked about, what was it, Fool's Spring? Was that what you, uh, yeah. you referred to this? Yeah, Fool's Spring. Several, several weeks ago? Yeah. I, I thought we kind of put that behind us, and, and here we are with Fool's Spring, the sequel. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean... I think there's a list. You'll have first full spring, second full spring, third full spring. Um, we might be, we might be the idiot spring by idiot this point. Spring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's where we are. We have had the polymer. I can tell you that because uh, yeah, it's been a lot of a lot of Kleenexes. <laughs> Kleenexes in use here at the Barnes household. Um, you know, it's just that time of year. Yeah, I mean, I look outside now. It's 55 and and gray out there we had a it was glorious last week but it was about you know glorious for me and you to be outside in, in the yard um yeah. you know me then it was 70 degrees and sun shining which is lovely i know for our listeners purposes you know they needed to be a little bit warmer i am not an agronomist or soil specialist but i do have a few potted plants and planted plants that i kill uh throughout the year <laughs> And I know, so I know that the ground takes longer to freeze when temperatures get below freezing. And so I suspect it takes longer to warm. So if it's, what I mean to say, if it's, if it's 75 degrees outside, that doesn't necessarily mean that the soil right. is warm enough for these guys, our listeners to be planting. And everybody that's listening to this, me ramble, has exponentially, exponentially more knowledge on this topic than I do. So I'll be quiet. You know, and, and, and I think, you know, when you sit back and look at all the recommendations, I think most of them are looking for soil temperatures in that 60 to 65 degree range. Right. Especially for cotton planting. That said, it was 37 degrees here yesterday, Oof. on April 24th. And that's that's here in the, the greater Memphis, Mid-South area. And I saw a photo that Tucker Miller, who's one of our crop scan consultants down in Mississippi, posted, uh, shared a photo of his soil thermometer yesterday measuring just a few ticks below 50 degrees. So it's, you know, to say, you know, there's still a long way to go on this. And with the exception of a few areas in the, the southern and western parts of the cotton belt and maybe a couple pockets over in the lower southeast, the key word for cotton planting right now is wait. Yep. Uh, you know, and I, th- and I think, you know, you look at USDA's crop progress report this week, uh, I think 12% of the U.S. crop has now been planted. Yeah, that's up four percentage points from a week ago and, you know, one percentage point above the five-year average for this date, you know, but these are, these are early, early numbers, uh, you know, and coincidentally looking back at 12% we're at right now mirrors exactly the planting percentage from the same time last year. Yeah. So I guess we're right on schedule, but, you know, realistically, California, Arizona, Texas, and surprisingly Virginia are driving this planting at this point. So, uh, yeah, we've got some a act- little bit of activity going in 13 of the of our 15 states. Uh, most of them are still in that one to two percent range. I'm so. sorry, that's so odd that Virginia is in that group. 
Well, that that kind of struck me as interesting too. But uh, God bless them if they've got an opportunity. And uh, we're gonna have to let's, we're gonna have to let's, ask somebody out there who's in the who's yeah, in that room trying to yeah, be yeah. call. Well, you know, and and yeah, we talk about starting early, and and starting early is one of the things we're going to cover today yeah. with uh, with our guest, Dr. Ed Barnes, the senior director of agricultural and and environmental research at Cotton Incorporated. He's kind of our go-to guy for all things technology when it comes to cotton production. And we'll see what he has to say about some of the new technology that's available now and some that may be on a grower's radar screen sooner than later. But uh, just just a quick update. Uh, we just put the second edition of Cotton Grower's Crop Scan Ag Report uh, up on cottongrower.com. Uh, that's, uh, again, these are biweekly field-level reports from five crop consultants. Uh, based in North Carolina, South Georgia, Mississippi, Central Texas, and West Texas. And just a couple highlights from this report. Um, cotton planting had just started in Central Texas over the last couple weeks, uh, but some recent rains and cooler temperatures have slowed things down, and there may be some replants ahead for, for some of those growers who got out early. Uh, similar story in the Carolinas in the Mid-South. Rain and cooler days and nights are shifting some of these late April cotton plantings into early May, or at least just as soon as the soil temps are adequate. Uh, down in South Georgia, a uh, few growers had started planting cotton in, uh, as early as, uh, as this week, Monday of this week. Uh, some peanut planting has started, but obviously a lot of activity anticipated in, in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, that area is dry and could use a good rain. Uh, needed to help kind of get things off to a good start at this point. And, of course, in West Texas, mid-May looks like the target date to start planting, but they still need rain to help with that soil moisture to get uh, to get those crops out of the ground. Yeah, I'm going to be waiting on the Crop Scan Ag Report submission from out there that says they got that million-dollar rain. That's what I that's what I want to see two weeks from now when we get another submission. Well, actually, I got I, when uh, our our, our consultant out there, Carrie Siders, is with Texas A&M, uh, and just a really great source on this. Carrie's usually quick to get his report in, and, and I got a note from him late last week saying, can I hold off until Monday morning, because we're in t we might get a good rain yeah. out here, and that would change everything. Well, unfortunately, that rain didn't materialize as, as they had hoped at this point, but, uh, you know, as, as he says, pray. Pray for good rain. Yeah, yeah, we'll be doing it. Yeah. So anyway, we we share these informations uh, from these reports on in our Cotton Companion episodes as we go through the summer. Uh, but to see the complete reports, please go to cottongrower.com and look for these crop scan ag report segments. Well, speaking of good starts, let's welcome Dr. Ed Barnes, Senior Director of Agricultural and Environmental Research at Cotton Incorporated, back again to the Cotton Companion. Ed, thanks for taking time to join us again. I hope all is well at Cotton Incorporated. Uh, anything new and exciting there as we move into uh, another cotton season? Hey, Jim and, and Beck, it's great to, to be with you again. And there's always new and exciting stuff uh, going on here. So uh, pretty long laundry list. And of course, we go from dirt to shirt. So uh, all across the supply chain, we've got a lot of lot of new stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> I see uh, cotton ink activity uh, uh, all across the market, Ed. So uh, we appreciate you making time to be with us this morning. And and uh, 
you know, I guess I wanted to start with a very general question. You know, we look at this year, Ed, and it's quite different from last year, and especially in terms of price. We saw prices through the roof last year. Of course, inputs were also through the roof. This year, things come down a little closer to normal, uh, hopefully on the input side. It's certainly closer than normal on the cotton price side. If there's one thing I know about you, Ed, it's that you like to evangelize on the benefits of uh, uh, tech practices, of precision practices, and how farmers can uh, they can help themselves with this stuff. A year like 2023, we're staring at, I don't know, uh, between 70 and 80 cent price range. Can you make the case just generally uh, in a year like this, what's, what's the uh, value proposition for looking at some more techie or precision practices going into this year now that you know that is an important point that you know, i don't want to be too flippant about this but you know just about anybody can make money with a dollar twenty dollar fifty two dollar cotton all right you've got a lot of cushion there and we are you know at prices now where every decision on inputs can make the difference between being in the black or red and so this is the conditions where really the precision can really pay off because, you know, every penny counts. And so I, I definitely think in, in this type of economic condition, you know, you have to be management intensive because there's just not room to, to make too many mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll shift now and specifically, uh, you know, I want to, talk a little bit about planting season. We know that, uh, you know, a big part of uh, the, the practices and, and uh, technologies that you, like I say, evangelize for uh, is about being more efficient. So it, it's planting time now. Our guys are getting that itchy trigger finger to get out there and plant across the belt. Uh, hypothetically, if you were a grower getting ready to plant this year, uh, what new equipment or innovations that you're aware of would you be uh, headed to the field with here in 2022, but uh, 2023, forgive me, we're 2023. It's only April 26th. No, you know, there are a lot of new tools out there. And I think one of the first things to look at, and I'm going to put on, I'm going to maybe uh, scare some of my agronomist friends, because I want to talk a little bit of agronomy. Um, but you know, I've always been fascinated with plant population. And 30 years ago, I was doing some research in Arizona where we had trying different plant populations, different row configurations. And I was always surprised at how insensitive cotton is to plant population. And so last year, um, Curtis Stewart of Texas A&M did a literature review for us and looked at all the studies that have been done on cotton and plant population, and it was fascinating. And I want to stress, when I say these numbers, these are plants that came out of the ground, not number of seeds and put in the ground, and that they were fairly evenly spaced in most of these studies. But what they found is from 15,000 plants to, per acre to 80,000 plants per acre, there was very little yield impact on cotton. Now, that's a huge, huge range. And, you know, a lot of our, our growers... We continue to do plant population studies because 
you know, they've experienced in corn and soybeans, that's not the story, right? They're very sensitive to your plant population and you can really have a huge impact on yield. Um, and, and obviously cotton is good at compensating. If you have a small plant, it'll put on a few bowls. If you have a big plant, it'll get big, put on a lot of bowls. And so uh, I just want to stress that when growers are thinking about their plant population, uh, that they've, they've got a range to play with. And that said, one of the, uh, that 15,000, what the data did show is the yield drops like a rock if you go below that. So you don't want to get close to that one. Uh, but, and um, it's really interesting to me that how regional some of these things are in, in some areas like West Texas, where maybe you're going to be looking at dry conditions, you're not going to get great emergence. You're not going to eat. You're going to want to go way above 20. You're going to shoot for, you know, 40, 50, even I know some guys go up to 60,000 seeds per acre to make sure they get at least 20,000 plants up. So, um, I think they can give a thought to your plant population is important. And especially we know seeds are not cheap anymore. And, and so kind of working out that balance in your head of how low can I go and still feel like I'm going to get at least 20 evenly spaced plants and 20,000 evenly uh, spaced plants per acre uh, is, is important. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fascinating. That's it's one of those things where Ed, I'm an editor, so I did the story on plant populations like five, six years ago. And so that's where my knowledge base is stuck is in, you know, 2016, 2017. So this, yeah, this is kind of fascinating to me. That's kind of new, new news to me, I guess I should say. Um, so, you know, you, you talk there about plant populations. Uh, I, I was hoping to ask you a little bit about uh, plant dates. We know that, as I alluded to earlier, a lot of our guys are getting the itchy trigger finger. You know, they're hoping these soil temps warm up so they can get some seed in the ground. In relation to speed, timing, efficiency, how is it valuable to growers who may be trying to move plant dates forward, if conditions allow, uh, to help avoid or lessen weed and weed and insect pressure? So does that, yeah, move planting earlier, what impact are you guys seeing that will that have on some of these pest pressures? Well, no, you know, moving earlier can always have a lot of benefits if you can get away with it. And the one thing I'll throw out there, a lot of things I'll talk about we have on our website, cottoncultivated.cottoninc.com, or you can just search cotton cultivated. We have that paper on plant population. And we also have, uh, it's from NC State, and I think it applies more than just North Carolina, that we'll look at uh, kind of the, the five-day temperature forecast and current soil conditions and 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 help you know when it looks like things have warmed up enough. So that's, you know, you don't want to go so early that you end up replanting, obviously. Um, but one of the advantages of, of starting early is one of the challenges of planting season is, you know, rain and the weather can put a stop to things really quick. And so you kind of get this, if you can get an early start, one thing you can spread out your risk, right? You can reduce the risk that you're going to run out of time to get all your acres planted. And, uh, I'm not qualified. I won't. I won't play uh, entomologist. I, sometimes I'll play agronomist, but I'm not going to uh, try to play entomologist and think about the, the impact on uh, insects. Although I have heard, you know, if you go too early, 
it's cold, the plants are strugglers, drips actually become more of a problem. So uh, that's the one thing I can't remember the entomologists have taught me. Um, so I think, but you know, I think as early as you can get started is always a good thing. It also leaves the, the hopefully the chance you'll get to finish early. And there's a lot of that. And I think that's where you start. I, I do know, you know, as the, the season goes on, if you can get out early, you're probably going to be have less pest problems as well. I know in terms of, of being able to get out early or being ready to go, got some new planting technologies out there. The growers can make up a lot of cover, a lot of ground in a very short period of time. And I'm, and I'm sure a lot of folks are, are itching and ready to go with that. How fast can we, can we get a field? Can we get a crop planted? You know, it's really amazing what can go on now. You know, um, some of these planters are advertising 10 miles per hour. And I know some guys that are pulling that off. I don't think you can always get that 10 miles per hour, but, um, what they've done with these, they've got this automated downforce control and then really precise seed metering. It's just amazing. And, and so I think again, that the, the two components of that are you're moving across the field fast. And in old days, you know, if you start going above five miles an hour, things start bouncing, the drive wheels aren't engaging, and then just get a lot of skippy stands. And with these new controllers, they're going to keep that planter uh, firm on the ground. They're going to keep the seed depth constant. And then the seed metering uh, is, is really mind-blowing that uh, they are delivering these seed at a very precise rate. And, and so uh, I've seen some demonstrations where you know, they, they used the old technology and planted at five miles an hour and then came in beside and planted at 10 miles an hour. And the 10 mile an hour plants were more evenly spaced than the five mile an hour ones. So it's, you know, it's really uh, exciting to see that level of precision. And the other thing is, I think, you know, there's a, for some people, there's a trade-off. You can go wider and get more acres, you know, per hour. You can go faster and get more acres per hour. Of course, you go wider and faster, you get a lot more acres per hour. But I think for some people that are finding they're hitting some limits on their planting capacity, uh, and they're not in West Texas or in the Delta, looking at going faster is going to be a better alternative than wider, obviously. You get a 24-row planter out there. I know I've seen some fields around here that there are parts of them that aren't 24 rows wide. So uh, I think the speed thing is really gonna gives a lot of flexibility to, to a wide number of people. Let's shift over and look at look at weeds for just a minute. I mean, we've seen here in the past year the introduction of uh, the John Deere Sea and Spray technology uh, that identifies you know identifies weeds through selective treatment. We've got camera visualization technology, machine learning, artificial intelligence. You know everything else you can kind of cram into it. Uh, and there's some uh, some similar systems from what I understand that are coming from other sprayer manufacturers. Might not quite be as elaborate, but you know highly functional. What have you heard from growers about these systems and, and how do you think they're going to impact weed control programs and costs? Yeah, no, I think I'm really excited about this technology for two reasons. One is the the ability, you know, to be more precise with herbicide applications. And also I think some of these now have dual, you know, uh, dual application systems. They can put down different products at different rates. Uh, so that's, that's going to be really important. And, 
in terms of, you know, we know that this herbicide resistance is on our case all the time. And so anything we can do to, to really reduce uh, poor herbicide applications is, is really important. I'm working real closely with our agronomist, uh, Galen Morgan, and we've been, you know, looking at these technologies and I think they're really promising. Like you said, there's some other companies that are going to have uh, some similar solutions. Uh, I think one of the big questions and, you know, is, is the economics and that's still, you know, how much, and we have the technology to do this, that is for sure. And the deer technology, you know, I know that it works beautifully. Um, and, and so if you think about if what's interesting to me is maybe 20 years ago, there was something called the weed seeker and it was a little sensor. If you may remember it, you know, you had to have three of them in a furrow because that's so it could see the small weeds and, and, uh, and it worked great. And then Roundup came out and Roundup was cheap. And so it made no sense. Right. And so we're not in those days anymore. Uh, another thing I find encouraging as we get competition, it's going to bring the price of this down. Um, and, and again, I think that the technology is really solid at this point. Uh, the other thing that excites me about this is it's brought machine vision to a commercial system. And you think about, uh, and, and we've got a lot of studies going on looking at what we can do with machine vision. And it's not going to be long before not only, you know, we're, there's projects going on right now that Galen's involved with where they're looking at identifying different species of weeds. So that, that can be important in the future where, you know, if it's herbicide resistant, go ahead and spray it, right? If, you know, if you know that species or if it's not, then maybe we put out another control technology, whether that's, yeah, there's people using lasers, that's a real thing. Uh, or uh, Galen's working with Mississippi State on a precision tillage time that, you know, when it, it only deploys when there's a weed there. And so, uh, you know, this is going to offer a lot of, of new ways to, to help with herbicide resistance. And then also, you think every time you go to, to spray weeds, you're scout, you can scout the field. And that's just got to be coming because uh, we know these technologies can look for, you know, disease presence. We know they can see insect damage. And so uh, that that's going to be some added on benefits. I think we can expect, and I mean, I'm talking in the next two or three years, not next 10 years. Um, and then the other thing, there are some things obviously from above the canopy you can't see. Uh, I, I think there's going to be some opportunities for, you know, uh, cameras under the canopy to, to look for things too. So I think there's, Machine vision has me very excited. Just it's it's happening fast and it's not expensive. Well, you know, and, and that brings up another factor in all this too is what about drones? You know, we're we're seeing larger drones out there. They seem to be taking on a whole lot more tasks rather than just mapping and and scouting. And that and now they're moving into application at this point. And it this the technology seems to be growing exponentially. Where does that fit into to all of this? Yeah, that's a great question. That's one we're kind of struggling right now to answer because uh, we're actually seeing some growers, you know, or some companies providing drone-based spraying systems, services. And it's really, really interesting. Uh, for spot spraying, you know, you can see where it makes a lot of sense. If uh, And one of the things Galen's had a project with Texas A&M where they're, uh, you know, looking at scouting the field with the drone, looking for weeds, and then 
you know, the drone goes and sprays it right then. And so I think it's going to make real uh, sense for when you just have, you know, periodic escapes, not as a primary blanket application, just because the capacity, even though these bigger drones are, are bigger, they're still, you know, we're talking 20, 30 gallons of material. And they are, that said, they, they can do very low application rates and still get effective uh, coverage because one of the things like with the quadcopters, those propellers they're finding actually are pushing the material farther into the canopy. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of spot spraying applications. I've heard of area aerial applicators who are actually using these to clean up uh, along tree lines or power lines where they don't feel, although I know some of those guys are pretty crazy, but not much intimidates them, but uh, still they can go back and, and clean up a few things that they, they couldn't get to with the plane. So uh, that's exciting. I think there's, you know, and I think there's a lot more applications that we're going to discover as more and more people experiment with this technology. Okay. Well, looking at some of the other technologies, we've got autonomous tractors uh, going into the fields now. Uh, we're seeing some of the early stages of, of electro electric tractors uh, and equipment, particularly in some of the specialty markets. Con Incorporated working with some of these manufacturers and, and kind of where do you see the future for these technologies on a large scale? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me. Uh, one of the terms I'm hearing the equipment manufacturers use is electrification. And that takes me back to the history books of thinking, you know, we talked about rural, rural electrification in the early 1900s where the farms didn't have electricity. And now electrification means something completely different. Um, and yet, you know, one of the advantages of going to electric-based systems uh, is the control options. You know, now if you're doing everything with electric motors and electric control systems, it's just so much easier to get a very precise level of control, whether that's on, you know, seed delivery systems, spray systems, everything can be more precisely controlled if it's all electric. Um, you know, obviously one of the challenges for electric systems, if we were thinking of, of battery only is battery life, battery, you know, and I have seen some systems where they're, they're looking at where you just switch the batteries out, right? So you don't sit there and wait for the thing to charge. You just drop a battery and put in a new one. Uh, but the other thing I've seen, you know, heard some of the companies are looking at, uh, having an, like a, like a locomotive works where you have an onboard diesel engine, but it's powering a generator. And so everything's electric, but your power system is still fuel-based so that you don't have, you know, the limitations of, of worrying about battery life. Well, you know, I, I can't let you go without, you know, an update on some of the robotic studies uh, that that are ongoing at universities and, and companies across the Cotton Belt. What's what's the latest on, on some of those those studies? Yeah, no, there's some, some really good progress being made. Uh, we've got um, a project at Mississippi State where we're kind of trying to refine what they, they, the, the people in robotics call an end effector. And it's kind of the hand of the robot. And I hate to use the word hand because, again, when we, we, especially when we're talking about cotton harvest, you know, thinking of a little robot walking through the field picking cotton balls, that's not what we're thinking. We're thinking of an autonomous vehicle. Maybe it's one row, maybe it's four rows, maybe it's six rows. 
with these quote arms that are going out at a very fast rate and very selectively removing the balls. And so what Mississippi state, they we've had a prototype. That's just a, a straight, like a, a straight rod that shoots out and, and tries to grab the bowl. And then obviously there's going to be branches in the way and, uh, leaves in the way so they're they're working on refining that how they can kind of dodge some of the ob obstacles and still move really fast uh, at the university of georgia uh glenn rains is still making a lot of progress on an autonomous system there and they are again looking at uh different ways to, to speed up the process of removing those individual bowls uh you know, and, and using the machine vision, all that stuff is, is coming together. It's just a matter of how fast, you know, how fast can we go? And that's, uh, about, I'm really encouraged about the progress being made. Uh, Joe Maha is also working on a, a different approach at Clemson and his is more of a, a, a lot more like a traditional, uh, stripper header. And so, but what, what his system brings to the table and this is something that's been interesting when we're looking at, okay, once you've harvested the lower bowls on the plant, what if you defoliated it and got rid of those leaves? Would that free up more resources to the upper part of the plant? Because those leaves on the bottom, especially in, you know, rain or areas where we've got good growth are largely shaded. They're not doing anything. They're kind of a, a problem. And so if we got rid of those, could we reduce bowl rot? Could we increase the yield of the upper bowls? and in quality upper bowls. And so we're looking at that. And so one of the things Joe's thought is, uh, we, we non-selectively, we, maybe we just go through three times when we first harvest the lower part of the plant, then the middle and then the top. And so he's working on a machine like that. Uh, and again, around the weed control, there's a lot going on. And again, at the university of Georgia, they're, they're pursuing this idea of using lasers, uh, for, you know, killing weeds and, I got to see uh, last year, Gail and I, there was this conference in, in California, FIRA, where they it's mainly focused on vegetable producers, but they, ha they had all the autonomous equipment out there for weed control. And Carbon Robotics was out there, their comp commercial firm. And their machine, you know, uses lasers and it, it only moves about a mile an hour. But it was amazing to watch that it would just detect those weeds and target them so precisely. And so that's not an inexpensive system, but it's a very effective system. And so Glenn is looking at, could, and they're using more expensive lasers, these CO2 lasers that, you know, they, some, some of the similar lasers they use in, in metal cutting and things like that. So they can be very powerful, very fast, and very precise. He's, uh, Glenn's exploring, could we use uh, more solid state, less powerful lasers that might be more affordable? But the challenge is, they still, they take more time to kill the weed. And so he's trying to experiment with that and see what we could work around. And then that goes back to the strategy of once we get to where we're doing uh, machine vision and detecting what species of weed it is, if it's, if it's herbicide susceptible, just spray it and keep moving, you know, move it 15 miles an hour. But you come to, to a weed that's, you know, is a problem weed, maybe you slow down and give the laser time to hit it you know, and then you speed back up. So those are some things we're thinking about. That's, that's fascinating. It's always, always something out there to keep, keep an eye on, uh, moving ahead. So with that, um, I think Ed, we, uh, we thank you 
for taking time to join us today. Uh, the future for technology certainly looks bright for cotton and uh, really looking forward to seeing what uh, what happens this year and and uh, and where we can go moving ahead. Yeah, really always enjoy talking to you guys. Thank you, Ed. So, all right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Cotton Companion podcast. Uh, we want to thank, uh, special thanks to our friend, Dr. Ed Barnes. That's no relation, by the way, should have said on the front end. Uh, but we do want to thank Dr. Ed Barnes for his technology and research update. And as always, we want to thank you, our dear listeners, for joining us today. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. And if you did like what you've heard, um, Please be sure to spread the word. Tell your farming buddies about the Cotton Companion podcast. Here's where and how they can find us. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, Sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Cotton Companion Podcast is produced twice monthly. Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson are talented colleagues at the World Headquarters for Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. I'm Jim Stedman, East Beck Barnes, and we'll be back with you in two weeks with the next episode of The Cotton Companion. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made a farmer.